Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we've got another new show for you this week. Uh, I promise I got some interviews in the hopper. They're coming down the way with the coronavirus. People's schedules are kind of crazy. So uh, anyway, I've got lots of lines out for new interviews, and we should be having some here uh, pretty soon. But as it turns out, there's a lot of things to talk about in the news as well. Plenty of things to cover today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some kind of legal stuff. The Senate just renewed some warrantless collection uh, of web history. That's kind of troubling. We're going to talk about that. It's not law yet, but it's it's getting close. We're going to talk about some more Apple versus the FBI stuff. Uh, this has been in the news right lately because uh, they claim to have cracked the iPhones in the Pensacola shooting case. Uh, so we want to talk about that and what that means. Also, an interesting ruling about a um, the F, for the FBI. The, the the judge ruled saying that the FBI were not allowed to power on the user's phone and see the um, see the lock screen without a warrant. Uh, that's kind of odd. We'll talk about that. Kaspersky, the maker of famous antivirus software product, has come out with a review saying that 83% of online users make up their own passwords, which means that they're almost guaranteed to be weak passwords. We'll talk about that report. Also related to pass, uh, passwords, Firefox is the new, I want a new version of Firefox coming up is going to be telling you when a website where you try to enter a really long password actually ends up truncating that password without telling you, uh, which can cause all sorts of trouble. I talked about that. Microsoft has issued a warning about a really big COVID-19 phishing uh, email campaign, like I've talked about several so far, but this is a particular one that, that I guess has gotten really nasty. We'll talk about that. And finally, my favorite end-to-end -end encrypted messaging application, Signal, has come up with a new feature uh, that allows you to add a PIN, and that has some interesting new security uh, aspects to it. So that will lead into our tip of the week. So lots to get to. Let's get into the news. <laughs> All right, first up, uh, this has to do with the, well, it used to be called the Patriot Act, and now it's called the uh, USA Freedom Act when it was renewed in 2015. And this is a little bit of a long article, but, it, you know, I think this is important, So, uh, and it has a lot of little history and stuff in here. So I, I want to get through this, and uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about it at the, at the the on the back end. But basically, uh, the major, one of the major warrantless uh, surveillance sections of the USA Freedom Act expired in March. And of course we had a lot, we had a lot of things going on in March. Uh, so, you know, I think the, uh, Congress was, uh, maybe, uh, looking the other way or it was too busy with other things, but it's come back up again and they're, they're trying to bring it back up again. And some senators are trying to add some privacy amendments and one key one just got struck down by a very narrow vote. So uh, let's, uh, let me read this article here from Naked Security, the, uh, the Sophos blog. People are spending a lot of time online these days. They're helping kids with homework, looking up prices for a sick parent's prescriptions, or visiting who knows what websites in search of who knows what content, researching the pandemic, hanging out virtually with friends, shopping, or whatever else floats their boats. Unfortunately, the answer to the who in the who knows what is the government. Last week, the Senate narrowly missed an opportunity to protect Americans' web histories from government surveillance. On Thursday, an amendment to the controversial Patriot Act fell short by a single vote. The final tally was 59 to 37, but the amendment needed at least 60 votes to pass. The amendment, sponsored by Senator Ron Wyden, would have expressly excluded internet browsing and history from what the government is allowed to collect through the approval of a secret court established by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. The Patriot Act, designed as a response to the intelligence failures leading up to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, was signed into law by President George W. Bush in October of 2001. 
Twelve years later, former National Security Agency, or NSA, contractor Edward Snowden leaked classified documents that revealed how the law was being used to snoop on everything and everybody. In June 2015, the Patriot Act was replaced by the USA Freedom Act, a bill meant to clip the NSA's spying powers by slightly inconveniencing its metadata collection from U.S. citizens and introducing more accountability and transparency for it and the FISA court. Last week's Senate vote to reauthorize the USA Freedom Act brings the surveillance bill one step closer to becoming law. The bill originally passed in the House in March got amended last week in the Senate to pick up additional legal protections for some individuals targeted by the FISA court, and now heads back to the House for a vote on the newly amended version. If the new version passes the House, it will then land on President Trump's desk. The USA Freedom Reauthorization Act restores government powers that expired in March with Section 215 of the Patriot Act. Some history on Section 215. In 2001, it amended the Title V, Section 501 of FISA, allowing intelligence agencies to collect metadata on calls, known as call detail records, or CDRs, that it stores in repositories and secure networks. Section 215 allows the government to demand, quote-unquote, tangible things, such as records deemed relevant to terrorism investigations. The metadata has been used to secretly surveil Americans, sometimes for purposes that have absolutely nothing to do with protecting the country against terrorists, such as snooping on former girlfriends. According to The Hill, besides reauthorizing Section 215, the USA Freedom Reauthorization Act also would reauthorize two expired programs, one dealing with quote-unquote lone wolf suspects who aren't tied to any known terrorist organization, and another on the quote-unquote roving wiretaps that allow the federal government to track a suspect across multiple devices. Last week, Senator Wyden issued a plea for his proposed amendment to ban warrantless government surveillance on Americans' internet browsing histories. He said that warrantless collection of browsing histories offers endless opportunities for abuse, pointing to investigations of political enemies that could lead to the government snooping in on the web browsing histories that could be used against people, regardless of whether they're relevant to a given investigation. And this is a quote from Senator Wyden. He says... Donald Trump has called for investigations of his political enemies. Attorney General Barr has injected himself into investigations that affect the personal or political interests of Donald Trump. All it would take is for some innocent American's web browsing history to be deemed relevant to one of those investigations, and the government could start collecting it. And then it wouldn't even matter whether the web browsing history had anything to do with the original goal of the investigation. For any number of reasons, the web browsing history of that innocent American could reveal personal, even embarrassing information that could be then used against him or her, unquote. Senate passed the reauthorization on an 80-16 to 16 vote. The ban on collecting web histories without a warrant needed 60 votes to pass. It only got 59. As Vox points out, the vote was particularly frustrating given that four senators didn't vote on the amendment at all, and at least one would have voted yes. Wyden, the sponsor of the failed amendment, voted against the reauthorization. He put this in a statement about the dangers of the act. Another quote from him. It says, Quote, the legislation hands the government power for warrantless collection of Americans' web browsing and internet searches, as well as other private information, without having to demonstrate that those Americans have done anything wrong, or even in contact with anyone suspected of wrongdoing. Without further reform of these vague and dangerous Patriot Act authorities, Congress is inviting more secret interpretations of the law and more abuses. All right, so that wraps up the article. But this is really important, and this is something that's going on right now. It hasn't gone to the House yet, I don't believe. Uh, so if this is something you care about, absolutely read it, reach out to your House of Representatives representative uh, and let them know how you feel about this. Also spread the word to your friends and family, anybody else who might want to get involved, you know, post about this on social media. This stuff doesn't really get a lot of attention in the news, certainly not on the nightly news. Or if it does, it's really kind of given short shrift. So anyway, wanted to bring that up. Make sure you're aware in case you would like to uh, get involved and reach out. And next up, 
once again, we are back into Apple versus the FBI. Um, there was a San Bernardino shooting way back when that brought this to the forefront. And then there was the Pensacola shooting where this all came up again. And at the time and, and other ways, I've talked about this multiple ways. And I, you know, I try to kind of <laughs> try to bring the perspective on this and what it really is about and try to get the 30,000 foot view and the long-term view instead of the very emotional kind of short-sighted view. And, uh, but I ran across this article in nine to five Mac that I thought really did a really good job of kind of summing it up. So I thought I'd give someone else a chance to do this, <laughs> to do the same convincing that I was trying to do. Uh, so let me read this article, um, uh, this little article from this guy, nine to five Mac. The latest Apple FBI war of words in the Pensacola case has once again highlighted the huge challenge Apple has in communicating the reality of the debate in a world in which most people have no understanding of the core issue. To a non-technical person, the debate appears to be a moral one. The FBI says that it needs access to data from terrorists and criminals, and Apple wants to prevent this. FBI good, Apple bad. To anyone who understands the technology, the, the debate is very different. The debate is this. Do you want secure iPhones, which will sometimes mean that law enforcement agencies cannot access all the data they want, but will usually be able to access most of it? Or do you want iPhones to contain a deliberate insecurity which would allow them to be accessed by the FBI, but which will inevitably be discovered and used by criminals and foreign states? In simpler terms, do you want your iPhone to be secure or not? So how can Apple successfully communicate the reality of the debate in terms anyone can understand? Just as I did for the Apple Google Contact Tracing API, here's my attempt at it. Of course, that's the author talking. First of all, Apple already helps the FBI. Every time the FBI has a court order allowing it to access personal data belonging to a suspected terrorist or criminal, Apple offers all the assistance it can. It will hand over a copy of the iCloud backup of the phone. This doesn't contain all of the data stored on the phone, but it does have most of it, including the notes that enabled the FBI to link the Pensacola shooter to the Al-Qaeda. Apple will also provide account information, transactional data, and so on. In short, Apple will, when given legal authority, hand over all the information it possesses about an iPhone and its owner. Point two, the FBI can break into most iPhones without Apple's help. Apple is engaged in a constant game of cat and mouse with hackers, some of them state entities and operating with essentially unlimited resources. The hackers try to find vulnerabilities on iOS, and Apple tries to block them. Keeping pace requires Apple to regularly update iOS with new security patches. Sometimes hardware vulnerabilities are discovered, which means that hackers can get access even when the iPhones are running the latest version of iOS. At any given moment, there will be vulnerabilities that Apple does not know about and so can't yet fix. Most vulnerabilities discovered are sold to companies like Zerodium, which will, in turn, make them available to anyone who wants to pay for them, including the FBI. Point three, this was true in both high-profile cases. There have been two high-profile cases in which the FBI has demanded Apple's assistance cracking an iPhone belonging to a suspected terrorist, San Bernardino and Pensacola. In both cases, Apple handed over all the data it had, and in both cases, the FBI was able to use commercial services to crack the phones to get the rest of the data. But Apple cannot just unlock phones for the FBI. There is no magic way to unlock an iPhone. The safeguards Apple builds into iOS are designed to stop anyone from unlocking an iPhone without the owner's permission. Apple is no more able to unlock your phone than I am. So the big question, why not provide a backdoor? Because it's impossible to provide a backdoor that can only be used by the good guys. Any weakness Apple builds into iOS for use by the FBI will inevitably be discovered by others and used by the bad guys. An iPhone can be secure against everyone or secure against no one. There's no in-between option here. So here's the Apple FBI debate in summary. Your iPhone can be secure or insecure. The FBI wants it to be insecure. Apple wants it to be secure. What do you want? 
Okay, so that's the end of the article. And I think he did a really good job of summarizing all the key points here. And it's true. Um, Apple actually, because of iCloud, and because many of us back up our phones and other things to iCloud, Apple does have full access to that, which is actually a shame, but really shouldn't. Uh, they should at least give everybody the option to putting their own password on this stuff, and that way even Apple won't have access to it. That is true security, and that is true privacy. Uh, Sync.com, for example, um, allows you to do that. Part of this is convenience. Apple doesn't want people to forget that password and then all of a sudden have no access to all their stuff and store it in iCloud. Uh, that would be, you know, a customer support nightmare. However, uh, they don't have to do it for everybody, and they should at least give people the option, even if the default is not to go that way. But anyway, the point about the phones is basically what this person said. There's nobody has come up with a way yet to hobble encryption in such a way that only good guys can get into it. And that really is the crux of this debate. So would you rather have everything be insecure or everything be secure? Yes, that will mean that in some cases, you know, FBI, police, law enforcement in general, will have to find other means to get to get this information. And actually, the really dumb thing is even Apple's not perfect. They've tried very hard to do this and they've still failed. There are plenty of solutions out there from different companies like the ones that they mentioned that, uh, that provide these little hardware unlocking devices for lots of money or, you know, vulnerabilities in the iOS that they don't tell Apple about. They buy from someone else and then they sell to whoever wants to pay for it, which by the way, could be anybody. These companies like Zerodium, as far as, far as I can tell, have no qualms selling to China, North Korea, Russia, or FBI, or maybe all the above. So anyway, at the end of the day, security benefits us more than it hurts us way more. And there are so, so many other ways that we can be collecting information about people today besides cracking people's phones. So keep that in mind whenever these two things come up and whenever this subject may come up with friends and family. That's really the crux of this issue. All right, another interesting uh, FBI-related ruling. I don't know if this is going to stand. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be taken to a higher court, but I thought it was interesting. There's been the whole area of whether or not you know, law enforcement can force you to unlock your phone has really been fuzzy. Uh, for a little while, it seemed, according to the court cases, that they couldn't compel you to give a, you know, to d divulge your passcode so that if it was locked with a pin code or something like that or a password, uh, they could not compel you to do that for Fourth Amendment reasons or Fifth Amendment reason or, or, or both, depending on how you look at it, I guess. But for a while, the prevailing thought was that your fingerprint or your face ID or whatever uh, could be compelled because in a lot of cases, forensic evidence like, you know, collecting hair samples or DNA samples or blood samples uh, can in fact be compelled and doesn't supposedly run afoul of uh, our civil liberties as outlined in the Bill of Rights. But there have been recent cases where that has started to go the other way. Uh, there was a case which this article mentioned uh, not too long ago where a judge said that you cannot, in fact, compel biometrics to unlock a phone uh, because un unlike collecting uh, DNA samples to look for crime scene forensics or whatever, this is really more about, I mean, really about providing access to tons of personal information that may or may not be covered under a warrant and therefore basically treats any way of unlocking a phone as if it was testimonial and therefore Fifth Amendment. Anyway, this is another real interesting ruling, so I want to just read this article real quick and then, um, and then we'll move on. This was summarized in a, an article on Mac Rumors. It says, in a Seattle court, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, Judge John Coronor, 
I don't know. C-O-U-G-H-E-N-O-U-R. Kohenor? Kohenor? I don't know. Determined that gathering evidence from a lock screen constitutes a search, and therefore doing so without first obtaining a warrant violates the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits unreasonable search and seizure. Joseph Sam from Washington State was arrested in May 2019 and indicted on several charges related to robbery and assault. The suspect was in possession of a Motorola smartphone. According to Sam, one of the officers present at his arrest pressed the power button to bring up the phone's lock screen. And this is a quote, I guess, from the court proceedings that says, What is known is that on February 13, 2020, the FBI removed Mr. Sam's phone from inventory, powered up the phone, and took a photograph of the lock screen. The photograph showed the name Streezy right underneath the time and date. The suspect's name revealed on the phone's lock screen turned out to be useful evidence. Sam's lawyer subsequently filed a motion arguing that this evidence should not have been sought without a warrant and should therefore be suppressed. The judge ruled that the police were within their rights to look at the lock screen at the time of the arrest, given that certain circumstances allow for a search to take place without a warrant. However, investigators involved in later search and seizure must obtain a warrant first. And this is a quote from the judge. It says, The police's examination took place either incident to a lawful arrest or as part of the police's efforts to inventory the personal effects found during Mr. Sam's arrest. The FBI's examination, by contrast, occurred long after the police had arrested Mr. Sam and inventoried his personal effects. Those examinations present significantly different legal issues. The FBI physically intruded on Mr. Sam's personal effect when the FBI powered on his phone to take a picture of the phone's lock screen, unquote. Usually when the topic of a smartphone search comes up in court, the question has to do with forcing suspects to unlock their phone. So this is the first case where merely viewing a lock screen has been subject to judicial scrutiny. A 2019 U.S. court ruling judged that the law enforcement officials can't force smartphone users to unlock their devices using fingerprints or other biometric features such as facial recognition, since doing so would run afoul of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. Previous to the 2019 ruling, multiple cases involved law enforcement forcing suspects to unlock their phones and other devices using biometric authentication. Okay, that's the end of the article. Um, so I think I've basically covered this, but so this is just the whole law around this is evolving uh, because our smartphones have so, so much personal information on them. And we've discussed this topic actually several times on the podcast, usually with some folks from the EFF or the ACLU. And you know, think about it, you know, a warrant for like a home or a business. Uh, usually that warrant has to say, you know, here's what I expect to find and here's where I expect to find it. And that warrant is narrowly focused on those, those places and those things. Now, if you unlock somebody's phone, there is a ton of information on there. How would you possibly limit a warrant to, I just want to look at this person's notes app, or I just want to look at this person's calendar app between this day and this day. Anyway, it's, it's kind of fascinating from legal perspective and uh, just wanted to give you an update on where things stand. All right, so here's that article I was telling you about from Kaspersky about people's password use. It's pretty short. Let me just read it. It's uh, from their um, from their blog, I believe. Highlighting the need for storing passwords, cybersecurity researchers have found that 83% of online users are thinking up their own weak passwords, while 54, 54% say they are unaware about how to check if any of their credentials have already leaked. Passwords are the most common method of authentication, but they only work if they're hard to crack and confidential. With an increasing number of apps requiring them, it can be hard to come up with new ideas for complex passwords and keep them all in your mind, especially when users may be required to change their passwords regularly, according to the Kaspersky report. Quote, in addition to this challenge of creativity for users, it's becoming more vital to store passwords securely and look out for possible instances where those credentials could be leaked, unquote. According to the findings, 55% of users claim they remember all their passwords. 
which can be difficult if security requirements such as password complexity and uniqueness are to be satisfied. One in five keep them written in a file or a document stored on their computer, while 18% use their browsers on their computers, smartphones, or tablets to store their passwords. And this is another quote from Kaspersky. It says, quote, consumers can monitor the spread of personal data, including which, which passwords might have been leaked. And this is not only for the sake of just being aware, it also allows individuals to take the right action to minimize any invasion of privacy, unquote. There are some ways to check if your password has been leaked. For instance, services such as Have I Been Pwned maintain a database where users can check if their passwords have been included in public leaks or data breaches without visiting the sketchier parts of the web. And here's one more quote. It says, quote, Minimize the number of people you share lo account login information with and never leave passwords where others might find them, be it on paper or on a device. Keeping them on sticky notes or a pad might be tempting, but it will also be just as easy for others to access things you don't want them to, unquote. Okay, I'll stop there. I actually kind of disagree with that. Um, it's okay to write. I personally think it's okay to write some passwords down. Um, I would put them on paper. I would not necessarily say what they are, and I would not leave them out in the open. Uh, for someone to actually get access to that, they would have to have physical access to your house. So the only people you have to worry about was any, were people in your house. This is not something... This is not something that you know, a hacker in China or North Korea or Russia or the United States is going to find because it's, a, it's, it's on a physical piece of paper sitting in your home. Um, so I personally think it's not that big of a deal. And if, you know, for certain passwords, like maybe the password password to your password vault, you know, that would be good to have somewhere and perhaps even put in your safety deposit box, something like that. So anyway, the real point here is that you really need to be using a password manager because obviously most people are not. And if you're not, then you, the chance of you actually being able to create strong, long, unique passwords is, well, it's basically impossible. So again, speaking of passwords, uh, this is something interesting that I actually hit this myself a couple times um, a few years back and I'd forgotten about, but it's it apparently it's still going on and uh, it can actually cause you some problems. So anyway, Naked Security's got another blog here about an upcoming feature in Firefox that's going to be really cool. And here's, uh, here's a brief article on what that's going to be. A tweak to the next version of Mozilla Firefox should fix the long-standing problem of generating a password that exceeds the maximum length allowed by a website without being alerted that this has happened. It sounds like an obscure issue, but anyone who regularly uses a password manager to generate passwords or passphrases longer than the 16 or 20 character limits imposed by many websites will have encountered this issue at some point. The user generates a long password or upgrades an existing one, pastes it into the website, which automatically truncates it according to the max length attribute except that websites offer no warning that this has happened, which means that the original and now incorrect non-truncated password is saved by the password manager. Spotted by security blogger Martin Brinkman, it now seems that Firefox 77, due on June 2nd, will warn users when this is happening using a red border and the following message. Please shorten this text to X characters or less. You are currently using Y characters. In other words, for example, it might say, please shorten this text to 20 characters or less. You are currently using 25 characters. Importantly, this happens before the password is saved to the website, which allows the user to adjust its length until a site's maximum is matched. As a thread on Bugzilla makes clear, this complaint is far from new. Ultimately, it's the responsibility of websites which impose limits on passwords without always stating what they are, coping with the divergence using the blunt force of truncation. But solving the problem in the browser has the advantage that it will work for all websites quickly. Are long passwords more secure? All things being equal, yes. However, where the law of diminishing returns sets in is open to debate. In 2016, NIST, NIST, which I think is National Institute of Science and Technology, I probably got that wrong. Anyway, it's a government organization. 
their special publication 800-63-3 Digital Authentication Guidelines recommended abandoning arbitrary character limits, raising maximums to at least 64. But it also recommended a lot of other things too, such as disallowing common bad password choices and not forcing users to change passwords at arbitrary intervals. The message a lot of big internet companies such as Google, Facebook, and Twitter extracted from that document, as well as their own learning, was to make this layer of security as easy for people to understand as possible. Rules were streamlined and the focus shifted from simply encouraging longer passwords to avoiding short ones using minimum links, discouraging reuse, and trying to persuade users to sign up for additional checks such as two-factor authentication. In fact, it's been possible to use passwords between 60 and 128 characters and links with many services for some time, but not all companies flag or even encourage that. It's not that much longer passwords are a bad idea so much as that services would rather focus on raising minimum standards. Okay, I'll stop there. So basically what this is saying is let's say you use LastPass or some password manager and because you don't have to remember these passwords, you're like, screw it, let's just crank it up. What does it hurt? I don't have to remember it. So when you come to change your password, let's say, let's make that character, you know, let's make it a 50 character password. And you go and enter that password. Some of these websites, because they really can't handle or don't want to handle passwords longer than whatever their limit, let's say, you know, 15 characters, takes those 50 characters you enter and just chops off the last 35 of them and then saves that as your password, uh, which means that potentially your password manager has now saved the 50 character password, but your real password is only the first 15 characters of that 50 character password. Now, I suppose if you go back to log in again and the login screen also chops off the last 35 characters, it will still work. But I've definitely run into this before and it was, it was something I had to troubleshoot with the, uh, the company and, uh, I had entered a password that was, it wasn't super long. I think it was maybe 20 characters. Um, but when I went back to log in, I knew I'd set the right password, but I couldn't log in. And so, and I, I reset my password over and over again and I kept having this problem. And of course, every password I reset it to was also 20 characters long. So it kept failing. And so I finally had to call a customer support and find out. And after much going back and forth, we finally determined that what the problem was is that they only support passwords up to, know, let's say 16 characters. So in reality, what they were doing without telling me is they were lopping off the last four characters I was giving them. And so they were saving the first 16 characters as my password while I was saving all 20 characters as my password. And of course they don't match. So anyway, Firefox is going to have this new feature coming up. Uh, where in the form field, it can tell if the form that you're entering in has chopped off. I mean, cause you know, it's a password field, right? So it's usually a bunch of, you know, star, 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 right? And, and they're, you can't look at that and see visually whether or not they've really truncated your password or not, but Firefox can. And if you entered 20 characters, but the form only took 16 of those, it's going to put this little red border around that field and say, Hey, they just chopped this off. So just so you know. Uh, you put in 20 characters, but they only save 16 of them. And so that will be your clue that you'll need to drop the number of characters in your password down to whatever that limit is. And just as a quick side note, um, if you actually do the math on how hard it is to crack a really unique password, in other words, if you have to brute force it by guessing every possible combination of letters, numbers, and special characters, if you get up into the 15 or 20 character range, you're already, you've already got a really good password. Personally, I usually go with 20 characters and most sites will handle at least up to 20 characters. All right, one more quick article here, uh, a warning about a Microsoft phishing scam, and then we'll get into our tip of the week. So this is an article from Tech Radar. Uh, I'll jump right in. It says, Microsoft has issued an alert to users concerning a widespread COVID-19-themed phishing campaign. The threat installs the Net Support Manager remote administration tool to completely take over a user system and then execute commands on it remotely. The Microsoft security intelligence teams 
provided further details on this ongoing campaign in a series of tweets in which it said that cyber criminals are using malicious Excel attachments to infect users' devices with a remote access Trojan, or a RAT. And I'll explain that here in a minute. The attack begins with potential victims receiving an email that impersonates the John Hopkins Center. This email claims to provide victims with an update on the number of coronavirus-related deaths in the United States. However, attached to the email is an Excel file that displays a chart showing the number of deaths in the U.S. When the user opens the Excel file, it then prompts them to, quote-unquote, enable content, and doing this executes the file's malicious macros, which download and install the Net Support Manager client from a remote site. In a tweet, the Microsoft Security Intelligence team explained that all of the different Excel files used in the campaign all connect to the same URL, saying, quote, The hundreds of unique Excel files in this campaign use highly obfuscated formulas, but all of them connect to the same URL to download the payload. Net Support Manager is known for being abused by attackers to gain remote access to and run commands on compromised machines, unquote. While the Net Support Manager is actually a legitimate remote administration tool, it is commonly distributed among hacking communities who use it as a rat. Uh, remote access Trojan. Once a user unknowingly installs the Net Support Manager on the computer, it allows hackers to gain complete control over the infected machine and execute, execute commands on it remotely. The Net Support Manager rat is then used to compromise a victim's computer further by installing additional tools and scripts. Those who have fallen victim to the phishing campaign should assume that their data has been compromised and that hackers have tried to steal their passwords. Once the infected device has been cleaned, users should change all their passwords as well as those belonging to other computers on their network. So that advice is generally true of anybody who's been infected by some serious malware. I mean, basically, if, if malware gets on your computer, you should assume that it's, you know, recording every keystroke you make, potentially even taking screenshots of what you're doing. And so that since the time you've been infected, anything you did on that computer, any files that were on that computer, uh, you should assume have been exfiltrated and copied. Now, one minor bonus here is that if you've been using a password manager this whole time, that password manager has filled in the passwords for you, meaning you never type them, which means uh, that even if there's malware on your machine, they probably haven't gotten access to those. But anyway, this particular thing, keep an eye out for this. Um, there's been, of course, all sorts of COVID-19 scams, but, you know, this one apparently has been one that's been running rampant lately, and it's from John Hopkins, and it comes with an Excel file, which is a spreadsheet file. Uh, Excel is the Microsoft Office spreadsheet application. And if you open that up and then you enable macros, I don't know why they have those still after all this time. That is a huge hacking vector. But if you do that behind the scenes, it will actually run some code, which download this, downloads this Microsoft tool called Net Support Manager. And instead of some, you know, instead of being at a company where you've got an IT department that is using that to monitor and control and configure everybody's computers automatically, it's a bad guy doing it remotely, hence the name Remote Access Trojan, and Trojan like a Trojan horse, snuck in with something you thought was normal, and, 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 and contained in that normal thing was this, you know, this virus. So, as always, if don't open attachments that you did not ask for, and beware of you know, any Microsoft Office document that as soon as you open it, pops up some window saying, would you like to enable macros or enable scripts or something, just say no. All right, so let's get to our tip of the week. And I ran across this article uh, on Lifehacker. Love Lifehacker. Um, and it taught us about how to add a security pin to your Signal account. And Signal, the end-to-end -end encrypted messaging app that I have been recommending for a very long time and is recommended by others such as Edward Snowden and Bruce Schneier and a lot of other crypto experts, has come out with a new feature. Um, and it allows you put a, to put a pin on your account that has some interesting security features. So let me just read briefly from this article and you'll understand. 
Signal's new PIN feature adds an extra layer of security to the encrypted messaging app and makes moving your account between multiple devices less of a hassle. While all text and voice communications in Signal's is end-to-end encrypted locally and never stored on Signal servers, period, your PIN can be used to encrypt certain Signal profile information that can be shared between devices, stuff like your contacts and your account settings. Note that your PIN itself is not saved on the servers. Even when uploaded to Signal servers, the data can only be accessed by those with the PIN. This special code can also be used to lock your account so your PIN will be required before it can be registered to a new device. All new users will be asked to create a PIN when they install Signal for the first time, but you can also add or edit your PIN in Signal settings. Heads up, since Signal doesn't save your PIN, it can't be recovered if you forget it. Make sure you pick a PIN you won't have trouble remembering. And that's the end of the article, and of course I'll say what you should do is just put it in your LastPass. Create a secure note within LastPass, you know, call it Signal, my Signal pin or whatever, and within that note you can put whatever pin you pick. So just to recap, Signal is a is a messaging app. There's so many of them out there. There's Apple Messages, there's Facebook Messenger. You would even include things like Instagram and Snapchat. WhatsApp certainly is one of the more popular ones, if not the if not the most popular one. And while all of those have encryption on some level, most of them are not truly end-to-end encrypted. Uh, WhatsApp supposedly is, but since it's owned by Facebook, I still wouldn't trust it. Because, I, I mean, it's still it's end-to-end encrypted, which means at either end it's not, which means that Facebook, who's also running that app, can access whatever you're doing. All the end-to-end encryption says is that nobody in between you and your recipient, or more specifically between your phone and your recipient's phone, has access to whatever messages are going back and forth. But the app that's on the phone certainly does. So if you don't trust that app, you would have to assume that whoever owns that app also can see whatever you're sending. Anyway, Signal. Uh, it's an open source project. It's all about security. It's done by some extremely smart security guys. And it's the one I recommend. If you're going to pick anything else, go with Signal. And I realize it's hard because what that means is everybody else you want to talk to also has to have Signal installed. But Download it, give it a shot. One, one, I guess, semi-cool thing about Signal, and this is actually something they're going to be changing soon, but the one thing about Signal that some people don't like is it's not super anonymous because you're, you know, so far, currently, your Signal account is associated with your cell phone number. Now, that's not your name, it's not an email address, but it is your cell phone number, so if anybody knows that number, then they know you have an account, which personally is not a problem for me. The upside to that is when you install Signal, and if you give it access to your local address book, then it can immediately tell you who else on Signal you already know has an account. Because the phone number is in the address book, and all they have to do is look up that phone number, and they can tell you who they are. So, tip of the week. Uh, First of all, if you have not already, just, it's free. Just try it. Download Signal. Go to Signal.org and download the app for your phone. Get it installed. Get it set up. And if you've done it for the first time, that's going to ask you for a PIN anyway. Uh, If you already have Signal installed, uh, here's how you set up the PIN. Um, You go to the little three-dot menu on the upper left, I think. And tap Settings and go into Privacy, and then scroll down until you see Signal Pin toward the bottom. At that point, you can just you know change the pin and enter enter whatever you're going to do. Uh, note that by default it's a four-digit pin, but you can change that to an alphanumeric thing, so it's more like a password, which is what I did. So then you input it twice to make sure you got it right, uh, and of course, you know make sure you at least write this down somewhere. If not, I would you know if you use a password manager, just store it there as a secure note, because if you lose this. Uh, there's no going back. You'll basically have to trash this account and create a whole new one. And any other messages you had in this account will be completely inaccessible to you forever. 
The other thing that would be good for this to do uh, to prevent somebody from hijacking your account, especially since it's tied to your since it's tied to your cell phone number and cell phone cell phones can be cloned and hacked. Someone else, you know, if they really wanted to, might be able to set up a phone with your same phone number. Uh, you're gonna definitely want to set this up as your registration pin as well. So look, uh, there's a registration lock feature right there in the privacy menu as well. And once you've set up the pin, you can enable registration lock, uh, and that will require your pin whenever you add your phone number to a new device. <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap it up this week. Thanks again for tuning in. If you've just dropped by and haven't already subscribed, then go ahead and subscribe now. That way you'll never miss another episode. A brand new episode comes out every week, Monday morning, and hopefully very soon, maybe maybe even as soon as next week, we'll have another interview for you. Speaking of interviews, uh, VPN Reports, which is one of the many VPN review sites out there, uh, the owner of that site reached out to me and wanted to interview me for that um, for that site, and he did. So we went back and forth and emailed a little bit. He asked me some questions. Uh, if you want to check that out, go to vpnreports.com slash blog, and blog is all lowercase. And my article should be the top article there or very close to it. Of course, I will also put a link to that in our show notes if you want to get it from there. You can also find it on my website. If you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, there's a press tab. Uh, it's the top link there on the, uh, under the press tab. So for those of you keeping count, this is episode 169, uh, which means that my 200th episode is not that far away. It's actually further away than I thought if I did the math. Uh, my 200th episode will be on December 28th. Uh, so we'll have to definitely do something special, some sort of a combination New Year slash 200th anniversary kind of a thing. Uh, if you have any interesting ideas of what I might want to do for that, reach out. Um, just send me an email at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. And likewise, if you have any other suggestions, if you have, I'm working on the fourth edition of the book, uh, which hopefully again will be out uh, probably August or September, I'm hoping. Uh, with the COVID stuff going on, you never know. But that is the that was the, that was your original plan when I signed the contract. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that. If you go to Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and sign up at the right level there, you will actually get some kind of interesting behind the scenes stuff as I write this fourth edition. But if you have any interesting uh, ideas for things I might want to add or change about the book, you can also send me uh, email at feedback at firewallsdon'tstrapdragons.com. Or if you have any interesting ideas of somebody I might want to interview for the show, I'm always open to ideas there too. All right, that'll do it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe, stay home, stay healthy. And as always, everybody, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.